Reflections on Life at the End of Time, Part 2, the second talk in the series, was presented by Jack Crabtree on July 5th, 2015 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number one, Eschatological Timeline, accompanies this talk. Okay, last week we started, I don't even know if I can call it a series, but we started talking. And in keeping with the dog days of summer here, I want to keep it light and casual and carry on a conversation. So at any point that you want to interject your comments or questions or whatever, that's my goal here is to have a conversation. The conversation is about, I want to give you some reflections that I have about how to live our lives. What's life going to be like at the end of the present time? And last week I did try to define what I meant by life at the end of the present time. That'll become clear again here in the first part of what I want to do. But what I'd like to begin with is Ron raised a question at the end of last week, and I think I want to spend a little bit more time answering the question or cluster of questions that he asked. He mentioned that he knows from past experience that I used to be more kind of a wannabe amillennialist, and I'll define that again before we're done here, but now I'm sounding like a premillennialist, so I think his question was, what's up, what gives? And the question was whether I'm going to defend that position or tell you how I got there or what I'm thinking. And I think, why was it that I found that more compelling back then, but I don't find that more compelling anymore? What's with that? So I want to talk a little bit about that. But before I do, let's, if any of you do have the handout, I want to briefly go over the handout. If you don't have it, I'll just try to describe what it is that we're looking at. We emailed out a chart on the left-hand side are a series of a list with indentations on it. And then the right-hand side has bars to indicate what general period, what general time period in history we're talking about. In the list as you received it, we start with you are here. So we start with the present. Before the you are here, there are two significant events that I don't have on the list. One is creation. And the other is sometime in the mid-first century A.D., roughly around the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, or shortly thereafter. Creation begins that column that I call the present time, the present age. When did the present time, the present age begin? As I'm conceiving of it, it started at creation, and it's going to go all the way up to the time that I'm calling the millennium or the time or the age to come. Now, not starting at creation, but starting in the mid-first century AD, around the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, begins the Great Tribulation. Now, this is what makes me different from what are typically called dispensational pre-tribulation people, because the Great Tribulation for them is the last seven years before Jesus returns. That's not how I read it. I don't think that's right. I think the great tribulation began when God said, I've had enough, at the point that they crucified the Son. They crucified the Messiah, the, his people, Israel, who were instrumental in rejecting him. After giving them a last chance, God said, okay, it's judgment time. And then began a judgment of the people of Israel that the most striking event Soon thereafter was the whole destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The Romans came in and wiped them out, completely wiped them out, and scattered them to the winds. And until 1940s, they were spread out all over the world because God had done so. Well, that was part of the Great Tribulation, and horrible things have happened to the Jewish people down through the ages, all part of this Great Tribulation. Now, granted, this Great Tribulation is going to come to a very dramatic climax 
in the few years just before Jesus comes back. But the whole thing has been the Great Tribulation, not merely that dramatic climax. Okay, so let's go through then. I've tried to make this list a relatively simplified list of how this is all going to go down as I see it. What is the picture that the prophets paint? So we're here. If I'm right, and maybe I'm not, but if I'm right, we are entering into the last days of the present time, the very last days. So what's the next thing, if I am reading this right, what's the next thing to happen? Now, these things that I've indented here are not necessarily in chronological order. Some of them might be concurrent with one another, but they all are going to be in this time frame. However they fit together chronologically, they're going to fit in this time frame. One of the major things that's going to happen is the emergence of the chief satanic antagonist of God, usually known in popular culture as the Antichrist. That's not actually a biblical name for him, but popularly we've come to call this individual the Antichrist. Though there is this individual who's going to arise, this chief satanic antagonist of God and Israel, known as the beast in Revelation, is going to somehow emerge, if I'm right, within the next number of years. We're also going to see various divine warnings that God is going to give primarily to his own people, Israel, divine warnings of the wrath that is about to come. And those are the four trumpets in the vision in Revelation. There are four trumpets that are connected with four different events. Those events, I take it, is God warning Israel, I'm coming in my wrath. The fifth trumpet is actually the first phase of God's wrath, then, that will occur after those four warnings. Those warnings may be astronomical events. They may be military events. I suppose they could be entirely different kind of events of which stars falling into the ocean and that kind of thing are merely symbols or metaphors. The more I read prophecy, the more I think about what the prophets are doing, the more it seems to me the prophets are speaking relatively literally. So I suspect there really will be something falling into the sea, or if not into the sea, into the Gentile nations, which are represented by the sea. But either a military or an astronomical event, I think, is probably highly likely. But it's hard to have certainty about that. Then you have the first phase of God's wrath, which is the fifth trumpet in Revelation. That vision in Revelation, the fifth trumpet, are those locust monster-type things that come out of the abyss, they seem to be demonic. Maybe they're not demonic, but that really, really weird vision, that seems to pertain to Israel, not the rest of the world, where God begins to inflict his own people, Israel, with this incredible pain and suffering for a short period of time, which then leads to the second phase of God's wrath, the sixth trumpet, which is a military invasion of Israel. And in that military invasion of Israel, it looks to me like Israel is defeated. There appear to be pockets in Israel that are not defeated, and God perhaps supernaturally protects them. But the land as a whole, the nation as a whole, and the people as a whole are defeated by this massive army that has invaded their land and killed many and wreaked havoc in the land. Having defeated them and invaded them, then there's a three-and-a-half-year period, however long that is. Three-and-a-half, I think, is a symbolic number. I don't think that's literal. But nonetheless, there's this brief period of time, three-and-a-half years, where Israel is occupied by the beast and his henchmen. Sometime during that time, we have the emergence of a false messiah, now, some of us have been reading something about Islamic eschatology, and what it looks like is very likely is the false messiah will be the predicted Isa, which is their name for Jesus, in Islam, who will basically come along saying, I'm Jesus, I'm Jewish, undoubtedly, thinking all likelihood, uh, this false messiah will be Jewish, and will say, Christians and Jews have got it all wrong. Muhammad was his prophet. 
I, Jesus, am here to tell you we should all practice Islam, and so you need to start practicing Islam. In Islamic eschatology, Isa is the enforcer. You convert or die. He is ruthless. That pretty much describes the little beast in Revelation. That the little beast in Revelation is the enforcer of the big beast, and he's the one who goes out and kills all the people of God across the land. Is that in any way connected with the 12th Imam? Yeah, I think so, but I don't know. That comes out of Shia Islam, and that's peculiar to Shia Islam, and not Sunnis don't hold that part of, as part of their eschatology. So I'm not sure about that. And then you have the final phase of God's wrath, which is the seventh trumpet in Revelation. It's a brief period of time where God pours out his wrath in abundance now against unbelieving Israel, and it would appear against some Gentiles in the world as well. We know it, it's poured out against the enemies who've come up to destroy Israel at Armageddon. But So some Gentiles are going to be affected by this, but certainly all of Israel is going to be affected by this. And those are the six bowls of wrath in Revelation, I think, are all part of this final phase of God's wrath. That then leads up to the very end of the present time. So all this stuff is happening, is the pressure is building, until finally you get to the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets sometimes just call it the day of the Lord. Revelation calls it the day of the wrath of the Lamb at one point. This is the seventh bowl of wrath in Revelation. There will be lightning, thunder, a great earthquake, a great earthquake, an earthquake that literally transforms the topography of Israel, splits Jerusalem into three parts, creates a valley through, apparently through the Mount of Olives that opens up a waterway from Jerusalem all the way to the Dead Sea that pours enough fresh water into the Dead Sea to make the Dead Sea no longer dead, and a fishing industry ultimately develops on the Dead Sea. So the topography and all kinds of transformations happen in the land of Israel on this day because of that earthquake. Also, great hailstones are going to fall from the sky, and I omitted from your list, unfortunately. It was supposed to be there, but I omitted it from your list. On this day, there's going to be destruction of all the economic centers of the world. In Revelation, it's described as the fall of Babylon. And I think that that seems to be connected with the great hailstones. I'm not sure. But the way I picture it is you've got this asteroid storm trashing, I think Hollywood here now, just completely decimating New York City, Miami, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Seattle, London, Paris. All the commerce centers of the world are going to be wiped out on this day. And that's the fall of Babylon. I think it's connected with the hailstones, but one way or the other, he's going to wipe them out. The economics of the whole world is going to be affected on that day. On that day, you also have the destruction of the beast, the Antichrist himself. He's camping out in what today would probably be Gaza. He'll be camping out there, and God is going to kill him directly. He's just going to be no more. God is going to wipe out the Antichrist. As we have a battle, armies mustering for battle in the Valley of Armageddon to come up to finally, completely wipe out Israel, and that's the famous battle of Armageddon against Gog and Magog, who are coming up against Israel to destroy them. And that's when those who are in Christ, first those who are dead and in the grave, but have been followers of Christ, will be raised to new life. And those of us who are alive and followers of Christ will follow them, and we will apparently float up into the air and meet Jesus as he is descending to earth. I think the picture is we are welcoming him, I think is the idea, but it seems to be that we would return with him because we are part of the host that returns with Jesus to do battle against the armies of Gog and Magog, wipe them out, deliver Israel from destruction, 
and Jesus comes back to be enthroned as king in Jerusalem at that point. Those of us who were believers, we are transformed from our mortal state into immortality in the twinkling of an eye, a supernatural transformation, okay? So those are the final events of this present time. And at that point, we have a watershed event and all of history now is transformed. Instead of this present evil age, we enter into the age to come, an age of peace, an age of righteousness, an age of prosperity, where Israel, who has been under the heels of the nation for centuries, is now all of a sudden under the leadership of their king, Jesus, is now ruling the world. They are the center of the world. Economically, politically, in every respect, they become, it's the hegemony of Israel now. So that begins a whole new time period that we call the millennium. There's the millennial kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, at least its historical manifestation of the kingdom of God, as opposed to its eternal manifestation. There will be the kingdom of God on earth, the thousand-year reign of the Christ. Isaiah 65 describes this as a new heavens and a new earth. And I, in the past, I have always assumed that the new heavens and the new earth literally was a new heavens and a new earth, but I don't think so. I think in Isaiah, it's a metaphor for how radically different the time is going to be when Jesus returns and is reigning over Israel from any time before that. It's as if we have a whole new world, a whole new cosmos, a whole new universe. During that time, Satan is imprisoned in the abyss. So he's not free to go out and peddle his lies and deceptions any longer. In the final days of the millennium, Satan is released from the abyss by God to once again go out and deceive the nations. And after a thousand years of Jesus reigning over the whole world in peace, righteousness, justice, truth, and prosperity, mankind listens to the lies of Satan and they decide we need to go kill Jesus. And the second battle of Gog and Magog occurs at the end of that time where Gog and Magog revisited come up to do battle against Jesus and now it's God who delivers Jesus and Israel from them, supernaturally destroying them, I think it says with fire. And with the destruction of Gog and Magog comes literally the end of the millennium and we're on the threshold of the end of created reality. The only thing left to come is judgment. God raises the dead who have stayed dead because they were not followers of Jesus. So if they were in the grave before Jesus came, they stayed in the grave. But now they're raised from the dead to be judged. And God will judge all the peoples of the earth that have not yet been judged. He will destroy this present created reality with fire and destroy everything that has been an enemy of God, is inimical to God, at which point he will create a new heavens and a new earth. Now we are talking about literally a new heavens and a new earth, a whole new universe, a whole new created reality, one that is built to be eternal, unlike the created reality of Genesis 1-1, which was not created to be eternal. We know that just from the very nature of the laws of physics. And this is an entropic universe. It's been winding down, becoming less and less sustainable as a ordered system. But the new heavens and the new earth will then be created, and now you'll have established the eternal kingdom of God. So that's the prophetic picture as I see it right now that has emerged through what studying I have been able to do in the prophets. Let me pause there for any questions you have on that. I might be not remembering correctly, but when you spoke on, uh, taught on Revelations before, I thought you said that, that when Satan was imprisoned in the abyss, it was when Jesus was crucified and raised and that there was like this time of peace for, or, or some kind of control? I, I have said that okay. in the past. It wasn't when I was teaching on Revelation. When I was mm -hmm. teaching on Revelation, I taught it this way. 
Yeah, I used to think that the being prisoned in the abyss was the curtailing of Satan's activity that happened because Jesus, the light, came into the world and dispelled the darkness, and that that was going to last until now when he would be released again from the abyss. But I think I was wrong about that. Okay, so I would appreciate maybe a little bit more clarification on how Isa in Islam, what that Jesus looks like and maybe his Jewishness. Can you pull that together? And, and what? You, and his Jewishness and how that, what that might look like a little bit more? Well, as best I understand it, he will be a Jew who returns claiming to be Jesus. He will be very Muslim, will be a really good Muslim, and will be a very, what today we would take to be a Muslim, fundamentalistic Muslim. He'll be radically Muslim who will demand complete, strict obedience to probably sh Sharia law, that kind of thing. Is that what you're asking? Is that, am I? Yeah, I just, it, it was, that was just very intriguing because I don't understand Islam enough right now, but I didn't think of the Antichrist coming back and claiming to be Jesus. That's interesting. A as what did you say? Claiming to be Jesus. Well, that's not the Antichrist. See, in Revelation you have two beasts the beast that it comes out of the sea and the beast that comes out of the land, I think the beast that comes out of the sea is a Gentile. And I think that's what the sea represents is the Gentile world, the Gentile nations. The land represents Israel, I think. So the beast that comes out of the land is, I think, a Jew. And he's the one with two horns. And okay, now, you're, now you're asking me to tax my memory. But that's the one that I think is imitating Jesus of Nazareth is a false Jesus of Nazareth. And he's the one that makes an image of the first beast and encourages the whole world to worship the first beast. And if they don't worship the first beast, he kills them, that kind of thing. So being Jewish, he is going to possibly be able to convince the Jewish nation to convert Ma to Islam? Many of them, I believe. Yeah, many of them. And I think that's why you have in Revelation the final bowls of wrath all this wrath coming upon the Jews because they're worshiping Satan. They end up worshiping Satan. And so at the end, things get really, really brutal for the Jews in Israel. And I think it's because many of them have followed the beast. Revelation makes a distinction between the Jews who refuse to follow the beast and those who follow the beast. So yeah, I think there will be many of them. Sorry, and just maybe a final question. So what do you think the Gentile world is going to be doing at this point in response to maybe Esau? Well, that's, of course, harder to answer because the prophecies don't talk about us. They're not even interested in us and our history. They're focused on what's happening to God's people and why and how this is going down in Israel. We only have hints. Those hints, it seems to me, suggest that there will be a worldwide effect of the Antichrist. But I suppose it will be a lot like in the time of the Roman Empire. If you had the Antichrist who was Caesar in the time of the Roman Empire, he'd have various governors and representatives around the world doing his bidding, but some do it more than others, some do it more faithfully than others. So I think it's not going to be a consistent story. Some parts of the world will just be spectators to all this. Other parts will see the wrath of the Antichrist just as the Jews do, I would think, in one way or the other. So to sum up, it sounds like there's going to be a tremendous pressure to convert to Islam. Yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. This is all on the assumption, which makes sense to me right now, that it's the religion of Islam that is really the main player, the main antagonist of God at the end of time, yeah. Jack, I'm trying to figure out if I was at the beginning of the millennium mm -hmm. when Satan was locked up, what's going to be different about me? Is it just my focus and the direction that I want to go, or am I still fighting with sin? And I, mean, what I, I don't think there's going to be much different about you. Hopefully you and I won't even be here. But hypothetically, if, if I were a non-believer, just a plain old ordinary depraved sinner like the rest of mankind who managed to survive, all of these things are going to happen at the end. And so here I am, a Gentile living in America, 
Jesus is reigning in Jerusalem and, the, and Satan is in the abyss? That's your question, right? You're not going to be any different. Notice that's what the whole story in Revelation shows us is you could potentially end up being one of those people who goes, takes up arms to go kill Jesus a thousand years later. You're capable of incredible folly, incredible ignorance, incredible evil. You're capable of that because you're a depraved sinner. You're no different than us human beings today. But what's radically different is the world we live in. Remember when we were going through Ephesians, he talks about Satan. He describes Satan as the ruler of the power of the air. And what it looked like to me as we were going through Ephesians is that if Satan is the ruler of the power of the air, what's the power of the air? The power of the air, I think, is the power of culture on human beings, is the shaping, determining, governing force that all those people around us, the pressure they put on us to conform to their way of thinking, to their values, to their ideas, and so on. And that's very, very powerful. Well, who's in control of that? Satan, according to Paul in Ephesians. It's his lies, it's his myths, it's his values, it's his suggestions planted into human culture that make their way into, in our context, television, radio, movies, novels, and so on. And they create a picture of stuff being normal that is perverse and stuff being perverse that is righteous. <laughs> Just invert all of the values and we find that even we as Christians begin to think like that. That's the way it looks. It looks like perverse stuff is actually normal. Well, why does it look that way? Because everyone around us thinks it's normal. Everyone around us tells us it's normal. We get used to it. We get accustomed to it. We become enculturated. We become acclimatized to this. Well, what if there's no evil person ruling culture any longer? What if the one who rules culture is the king in Israel, the king in Jerusalem during the millennium? That'll be a radically different world that people would live in. There will be a kind of naivete about us. We won't be sophisticated people who believe sophisticated lies any longer. We'll just be simple people who follow common sense and truth. And we won't have any pressure on us to do anything other than that. It won't be hip and groovy to do something else any longer. So you can imagine what a simpler, purer, more righteous world that would be if Satan is taken out of the picture. Not because we are any purer. We are not righteous. We still remain evil, and we will still struggle. We, I hope I'm not here, and mankind will still struggle with the same desires and lusts and so on that they have always struggled with, but they won't have a whole culture reinforcing them going the wrong direction in how they handle that. That's, I think, what's going to be different. So first I want to check and make sure that this quote or this saying is actually in the Bible, not just a praise song. Okay. The words, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is in the Bible, isn't it? Philippians. Philippians, yeah. there we go, okay. And I'm not recalling the context of that, but and I don't know if it matters to my question or not, but my question is, where in your chart, how do you understand that verse, I should say, and do you locate it at any okay. particular time? Well, I've never chart? studied and taught Philippians, so I don't really have a... It seems like it could be either. I think the exalted status of Jesus during the millennium is going to be so great that I think it would. you could easily have Paul saying that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess about the millennial period. Now, if he doesn't have that in mind, certainly it would also be true in eternity, I think. What's interesting is the more I've looked at this, from the biblical perspective, the line of demarcation between the millennium and eternity is relatively kind of porous. <laughs> A lot of eternity is spilling over into the millennium. It's not really the eternal age yet, but we're kind of getting a head start on it because a lot of the stuff that's happening in the millennium is going to get carried over into eternity. And that's what makes it hard to answer questions like that because some of what's eternally going to be the case is going to begin during the millennial period where Jesus is reigning. 
So I'm trying to map Matthew 24 onto this model. Some of it makes a lot of sense. The famines, earthquakes, nation rising against nation, kingdom against wars and rumors of wars. And that would give rise to the desperation of embracing a false messiah. The hardships, the hunger, the death, the fear. And then up pops this, among others, someone who can go to the caliph and get him to shut down the violence for a short while. And he would appear as a deliverer. Right, right. He could easily inhabit that role. He could go to his head or he could convince himself, yeah, I really am the Messiah. I really am a, the deliverer. And it would not necessarily have to be what we're conditioned to think of when we think of Messiah. With us, it's always deliverance from eternal death, deliverance from our sin, deliverance from our mortality and, and our evil. But they wouldn't be thinking that way, but it would still be messianic, right? Right. Right? Okay. Yeah. Well, especially because he's probably going to be saying, I'm your Messiah. Now, will he be claiming to be Jesus, the one in the New Testament? I think so. You think so? That's how I would read it. And he will claim to have not grown up in the neighborhood, but actually have been stashed off in the universe for 2,000 years, and now he's back? Yeah, that I don't know. Or will he be claiming reincarnation, perhaps? We don't know. I don't know. Do you think that the Olivet Discourse maps? Yeah, I think it maps onto this, but we'd have to look at Matthew 24 because I think a lot of the things in Matthew 24 are talking about things that are in our past. I think you have Matthew, is it in Matthew 24? But I think you have the destruction of the temple in 70 AD described there. A lot of premillennialists, they want to make that at the end of time, but I don't think so. I think that was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because Matthew 24 is answering a series of different questions. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions he's answering is, tell me about the end of the time. And that's where you see the comments about the signs of the Son of Man when you see the signs of the Son of Man in the skies. Okay, now we're at the end of time. He's near right at the door. Right. It's odd that he says, no one knows and it's translated, not even the angels. Now, is he talking about the angels' angels? I don't know. Or is he talking yeah. about messengers? Yeah, I'm not sure. The, the angel talking to Daniel seemed to have a pretty good clue about what's going to happen. Right. Maybe yeah. not the date on the calendar, but yeah, he's... Actually, I'll address that because one of the objections that some of you may have for me is, who do you think you are to know when the end... Can you think of anybody who's ever predicted the end that's not a nut? <laughs> right? So you're going to say, Jack, why are you not a nut? And I'm going to answer that question. But I'll talk about that later. But I think he means I can't pinpoint it exactly. But he's not saying that it is intrinsically impossible to know that the end is coming. That's what I'm going to argue. That's not what he's saying. Because he's talking out of both sides of his mouth then. You can't know when it's going to happen. But when you see the signs... Be ready. Be ready. Yeah. Well, what's that all about? What does he mean when you see the signs, be ready, if he's saying it's intrinsically possible for anybody, anytime, anywhere, from any standpoint, to know that we're near the end? He can't possibly be saying that. So I think what he's saying is, I don't have an exact calendar. And from his standpoint, he couldn't have even, that was mul millennia ago, a long time. So... Of course, he didn't know when it was, but he's not saying it's intrinsically impossible for anybody from any point in history to know. And that's why I'm arguing what I am. I think we have a standpoint in history where you can connect the dots and potentially know that we're on the threshold of if, the end. If it was completely opaque, there'd be no sense in telling anybody anything. Exactly, exactly. So have you come up with a description of the two witnesses? No. Mm -mm. Mm, they just keep escaping me, don't they? Yeah. They just get left out of the plot and all yeah. this. Okay. I think Jan might have an answer to your question about... No, again, I don't know Islam really well, but Muslims generally believe that Jesus didn't die. Oh. It was all kind of a hoax. Oh. He just went... Because he was sinless. They believe he was sinless, and God wouldn't let a sinless man die, so he somehow took him to be with him. Okay. So that's... And I hadn't the two together, I know Muslims do believe Jesus will come back and he will bow to Allah and confirm that Muhammad was his last prophet. So I hadn't put that together with this actually happening. I just thought, oh, that's just a bunch, you know, they just don't have it right. But your explanation of him being a false 
Christ yes, and the anti would you know make sense and it would fit in with both their eschatology and something. Anyway, it's yeah. interesting. Two things, other than our own general alarm or cultural awareness that hey things are bad out there, or is that what is moving you to say that we're on the cusp of these events, or are there other characteristics that are more actually well-defined than just sort of a general sense of, oh my gosh. Okay. So that's the first question. The second one is, other than the horrific events taking place at the hands of Muslim terrorists, so-called Muslim terrorists, and the general growth of Islam worldwide, what characteristics other than that lead you to think that it's Islam that okay. is the big player? Okay. Well, I've been reading an author named Joel Richardson who makes the case. He has one book that he calls The Islamic Antichrist, another book that he calls The Mideast Beast. He has another book called When a Jew Rules the World. They're all slightly different topics, but he has one insight that has really stimulated my thinking. Now, I, I'm not necessarily recommending the books. He would not like my theology. It's pretty evident. We don't see eye to eye on a whole lot of things. And he's more of a dispensational premillennialist than I think is valid. So I don't agree with everything that is in those books. But there's one fundamental insight that he has, and that is that the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation primarily, that interpreters of prophecy have traditionally taken to be Rome, doesn't fit. And it's not Rome, it's Islam. So there are two visions in Daniel. One, remember, is the statue that is uh, seen by Nebuchadnezzar, and the gold head and the silver breast, the bronze thighs or hips, and the iron legs changing to iron mixed with clay in the feet and toes. Traditionally, the gold head is Babylon, the silver is Persia, the bronze is Greece, and the iron is Rome. Then you have the other vision about the four kind of animals. You have the lion-like character, the bear, the leopard with four heads, and then this other beast that's not like the other beasts. And he munches and he chomps and he smashes and he destroys and he's made of iron and that kind of stuff. Well, interpreters have always taken the lion as Babylon, the bear as Media Persia, the leopard as Greece, and the other beast is Rome. He points out something that I had been thinking about before I read his book as well, is that it is a little odd. This is a vision to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Rome never got to Persia and Babylon. Rome was in control of Babylon for three whole months. And they went into Babylon, and then the Jews started causing trouble in Israel, so they withdrew their armies to go take care of that. And the next emperor, I think it was Hadrian, said, the Euphrates is it, guys. Don't go past the Euphrates. We're not interested in anything further east than that. And Rome never crossed the Euphrates again, as I understand it. So Rome was not even a player in the area where Nebuchadnezzar had his kingdom. Well, what's the vision of? The vision is of the future of your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. What's going to happen? But the interpreters of prophecy that have influenced us and have interpreted prophecy for us are Europeans. Rome is huge in Europe. <laughs> Rome is everything to us of a European heritage. So our interpretation of prophecy has been very Eurocentric. And Richardson points out that that's the wrong perspective. Our interpretation needs to be centered in the Middle East where all the players and all the events and all the affairs that the prophets are interested in, that's what they're describing. That's a relatively minor point, but it's a striking point. The major point is, and this was his insight, it makes a lot of sense the more I think about it. If you look at the history of Babylon and then Persia and then Greece, Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic kingdoms after him, and then Rome, what do they do? They go into an area and they lay siege to the city until you cry uncle and give up and promise to pay them a boatload of tribute. And then they put maybe a few officers in control, but they leave and let you have your life. 
you have your life, the same life you had before they came to town. It's just that you've got to make a whole lot more money because you're going to have to pay tribute to them. That's what the Babylonians did. That's what the Persians did. That's what Alexander did. That's what Rome did as well. And so in Roman cities, you have layers of culture. You have the indigenous culture that is still there. You have the Hellenistic culture that's left over from Alexander the Great in the Hellenistic kingdoms. And then you have the layer of Roman culture on top of that that is there. But they coexist with each other. And all of them are just fine with that. The one distinctive thing about Islam is it will not let you have your own culture. If they conquer you, they destroy your culture. They destroy your language if they can. They replace your language with Arabic. They destroy your religious temples and so on. They turn everything into Islam. If Islam is in control, then you will do what Muslims do. You must adopt their culture. Well, Richardson points out, isn't that kind of how the vision is describing that fourth beast? It's the destroyer of culture. It's the destroyer of what's there. He stomps and smashes and turns everything to dust. Just as a side remark on that, if you look at, say, Indonesia as the place where there's more Muslims than anywhere else, has the culture radically changed there? Or is this a future thing? Well, I can't answer that. I don't know the I mean, but even if you had an outlier, let's say that, that it's a distinctively different Muslim culture than other cultures. Even if you have a kind of outlier, it's still, what does Islam want to do? I mean, just because they didn't do it as effectively in one culture as they did in another, what's the impulse of Islam? It's to annihilate your culture and replace it with Islam, which is the main point. That's the point that he's making. So one of the indicators of that would be how they've whether there have been Buddhist shrines or whether there have been ancient Persian ruins or ancient Roman ruins or ancient Greek ruins or ancient Babylonian ruins, they've tried to destroy all those artifacts mm -hmm. and have done so. Yeah, and so if you're paying attention in the news, ISIS is destroying other religious shrines like crazy. Synagogues, a Buddhist shrine in Afghanistan, that whenever they get a chance, they just like to destroy stuff. <laughs> it's the culture of another people, has nothing to do with us, we don't like them, they're our enemies, let's destroy it. That's their impulse of radical Islam. Well, what Richardson says is, well, doesn't that fit the picture that Daniel gives us of that fourth beast? So he argues that rather than the fourth beast being Rome, the fourth beast is actually the Islamic caliphate that begins first millennium and lasts all the way up to World War I. It morphs into the Ottoman Empire that doesn't go away until finally the Allies beat them in World War I, right? Yeah. And then it appears to be dead. In 1955, would you have said Islam is on its way to rule the world? I don't think so. It appeared to be dead. But now look at it, which is the head of the beast that had received a fatal head wound and yet came back to life. So it, it's all those details fitting into place that make me compelled by Richardson's insight, I think, that all along the prophets have been talking about an Islamic caliphate, a renewed Islamic caliphate as the primary antagonist of God at the end of time. And then as far as the first question about us being on the cusp isn't okay, it a I, little bit hard to imagine that? I'll get to that. It's in my notes to get to that. If you don't mind, I'll okay. leave that till next week. Sure. Or, but I want to spend some significant time answering that question. I was wondering about the seals that come earlier in Revelation. Uh -huh. Well, I guess, I guess the first question is, we're in the tribulation years now. That's what you think. Mm -hmm. And you haven't seen the first trumpet or anything like that. You, I haven't, personally. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that seals chronologically come before the trumpets? Yeah, I don't think that until you get to the sixth seal, I think you're just talking about all of history beginning in the first century right up until the present day. I think the famine, warfare, death, plague, inflation, all that is just the plight of mankind throughout history from the first century until now. Matthew 24 stuff that Logan was talking about. The early part of Matthew 24, exactly, yeah. Just a side note, if I read you right, 
you see the culture in America going downhill and you're dismayed by that and you think that the culture in America is being influenced by the beast if your understanding of the air is correct that he's influencing the culture. Well, not exactly. Because the beast is actually a human being and he's not a player yet. If I'm right, it will be not too long before he comes on the scene and is a player. But no, I don't think he's affecting us yet. Oh, I see. But you would say that Satan is influencing the culture. Yeah. Okay, in Second Thessalonians, where he talks about they're worried because they've heard rumors that the resurrection has already happened. And remember Paul's answer there? Well, no, that can't be right, because the apostasy, the falling away, has to happen first. And the falling away can only happen when that which restrains the Antichrist and the end-time players is taken out of the way. That's all he says. He doesn't tell us who it is that's restraining him. But it seems apparent to me that if I were to put it in a word, what is restraining the satanic-inspired players at the end of time is the spirit of truth at work in the world. It's what Jesus was talking about in the upper room when he promised his disciples that, don't fear, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send another paracletos and he will lead you into all truth, and so on. For the world, it says, of the spirit of truth who will come, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, why is that significant? I think that's significant because the role that the spirit has played, for those of us who are called of God, he actually calls us to belief and sanctifies us and does a number on our insides where he transforms us. But he's also convincing the non-believing world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the role that he's been playing. The significance of that is, I think it has a tendency to curb our expression of our depravity. When it is evident that I am doing wrong, I'm believing lies, I'm rebelling against God, I'm rebelling against the truth, and people who rebel against the truth are damnable and that kind of stuff, that tends to sober you up a little bit. And so morally depraved human beings being sobered by the prospect of going against God and being contrary to God as the spirit of truth is persuading them to take that perspective, it has a civilizing effect on human beings. And notice that there was no America in the ancient world. America couldn't possibly have ever happened in the ancient world because I think it's only because of the role of the spirit of truth in the world that convincing the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as well as sanctifying believers, that has had an effect in history to make civilization possible and make a relatively successful culture possible, where people actually respected each other and didn't kill each other and followed laws and obeyed laws and had a sense of right and wrong, that kind of thing. America couldn't have happened without that, and that couldn't have happened without the spirit of truth at work in the world. I think it's the spirit of truth that was restraining these end-time satanic players and is going to be withdrawn toward the end of time. And that's going to be part of my answer to your question. Why do I think we're at the end? Because it sure looks to me like, dramatically, the spirit of truth is being withdrawn. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that Satan has been at work while this spirit of truth has, has also been at work? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, see, that's where, back to Denise's question, that's why I don't think it's Satan locked in the abyss during this time. I think rather there's a different image in Revelation that describes Satan's role right now. He's been cast down out of the heavens and has been cast to the earth. I think that represents a diminishing of his authority, but not an elimination, and a diminishing of his power, but not an elimination of his power. So Satan has been alive and well on planet Earth all this time, but because he's having to go against the spirit of truth and basically is under certain restraints that God has placed on him, he's only been so effective. But take the spirit of truth out of the way and have God say, okay, have at it, and we're going to have a whole nother ball game, I think. Thanks, Jack. My question is somewhat related to Sam's about Satan being restrained. 
So in the millennium period, as you see it, when Jesus is reigning on earth and there's peace and justice and prosperity and Satan is restrained, are you seeing that many people will still have kind of this simmering resentment and sinfulness in them where everything's going fine and there aren't really any external problems? And if that's so, I wonder if the millennium has kind of a didactic aspect to it where people finally see that the problem is inside. Is that kind of... Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yes, I do think there will be a seething, simmering evil that boils up to the final second battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium. But there will be no question but what Jesus is king. But there will still be a choice. Do you like it or do you not like it? Do you like Jesus being your king? And there will be a whole lot of people throughout the world who, being self-centered, depraved, wicked, evil people, would rather be king themselves and don't want to bow the knee to Jesus. They do because nothing in culture encourages them in their rebellion. And you have to remember that battle of Armageddon, it didn't go well for the people who were against Jesus. So I think a lot of people are going to be frightened into obedience and subservience and submission. It's not because they love Jesus, but they're afraid of him. They respect him and they're afraid of him. And that's going to boil over in the end. And I think you're exactly right. And yet, what was Jesus doing for them this whole time? He was giving them a time on earth like the earth had never known. A wonderful experience and a wonderful existence. And we hate him for it. I mean, it's just, that's the craziness of human sin. Part of that makes sense. Of course we hate him for it because then we have no excuse except that the problems are coming from us. Yeah. But then I guess a related question is then for whom is the millennium didactic? Is it didactic for believers? Because it seems like the unbelievers aren't learning anything no matter what. Maybe I spoke too soon. What I meant by agreeing that it's didactic, I don't necessarily mean that there's anyone who's going to be helped by learning from it. I don't mean that. What I mean is the way that a novel can take a truth or a reality or a principle and embody it in the way the story unfolds to just sort of give expression to this fact and this reality and this truth. The plot line of the millennium is just going to give flesh to the otherwise abstract principle. Human beings are stupid sinners, are stupid, depraved, wicked rebels against their creator. And that's going to become crystal clear in the plot line of the millennium. Yes, so I guess to sum up, the problem with human sin during the millennium age isn't Satan's influence at all, which will be non-existent during the time it's human beings ourselves. Right. Yeah, presumably the Jews, who are a perfectly righteous nation at that time, if I read the prophetic picture rightly. Unlike other nations, the Gentile nations, where you'll have a mixture, you'll probably have some who have come to believe and others who don't. But not so in Israel. In Israel, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will believe. And I think genuinely from the heart. But does that mean that they will not struggle with sin? No, it doesn't mean that. Their life will be like a mature, wise believer today you know, among us today. They'll still fail. They will still sin. They will still struggle with their sinfulness, but they will deal with it and respond to it the way a sanctified person ought to respond to it and deal with it. So we are not sinless until we take on immortality. I think we will be sinless during that time. We will be interfacing with life on this earth, but we will have been transformed, taken on immortality, and I think that means we will have taken on moral perfection as well at that time. Eternity will have started for us, in other words, I think. Did I get it? Yeah, I was kind of getting at that part of of how human beings won't have Satan to blame for their state of being sinners at that point. That's right. Yeah. He won't be around to tempt them, and rather it's going to be uh, clear that their state of sinfulness will be from uh, human beings themselves and not from Satan. Yeah, I'm out of time, and it's getting hot, but let me just very, very briefly, 
I mentioned last week that I kind of had a contempt for premillennialism back in the day, back when I was a amillennialist. To say I was an amillennialist is a stretch because I really had just sort of avoided looking at prophecy altogether. But the kind of amillennial perspective is the one that made the most sense. Now, what is amillennialism? Premillennialism is the one that I just outlined here, where Jesus returns in history before a period called the millennium and physically in person reigns as king over Israel during that millennial period after that. That's called premillennialism. Pre, because Jesus comes back before the millennium. Amillennialism gets rid of all this stuff that I have just talked about here and basically sees us as living our lives the way we've always lived our lives as good little followers of Jesus until the world comes to an end and then we enter into eternity. And none of this stuff is in their picture. Virtually none of this stuff is part of their picture. And they say, well, why? what do you do with those prophetic passages that Jack thinks are saying this then? Oh, well, symbols, metaphors of something that's going on right now. Okay, that used to be attractive to me. And I went away from last week thinking, now why, what was it? What bugged me so much about premillennialism such that I would be so dismissive and even contemptuous of it and would dismiss it and wouldn't even take it seriously? Why was that? And I think I put my finger on it. I think it's the simple fact that the picture that the prophets in the Old Testament paint according to premillennialism is weird. (laughs) It is just completely weird, isn't it? It's the stuff out of fairy tales and epic novels, and it's just surreal. It's almost surreal. You think, well, that has nothing to do with our lives as human beings here in human history. It's a nice story. It's fun to talk about, it's fun to think about, it's puzzles to solve are kind of fun, but we shouldn't actually believe that it's ever actually going to become an empirical reality for anybody. Let's not be thinking that. You're a nut if you take it that seriously. And I think that was my perspective. It was just too weird to be taken seriously and to be taken true. But come to think of it, the Bible's full of weird stuff. A flood that killed everybody except Noah and his family in a little arky-arky, right? I mean, he got saved by an arky-arky. You've got fire coming down from God and lapping up a sacrifice that Elijah had made. There's all kinds of weird stuff in the Bible. If we're going to avoid weird, you've got to do more than avoid premillennialism. You're going to have to avoid the faith altogether. The whole thing is weird. And that's part of the challenge of faith, is we are called, we're being invited to answer the question, this is a story, this is a reality that I'm creating, God speaking, this is a reality that I'm creating that has a whole lot of weird stuff in it. You're going to buy it or not? You're going to believe it or not? And I don't think it's possible to be a follower of Jesus and to be a believer without swallowing the weird stuff along with the not-so-weird stuff. It's just part of the package. It's just there. And premillennialism is just a big dose of some of that weird stuff. But I think that motivates a lot of people. If they have never really looked at prophecy and studied it, tried to create a coherent picture out of it, and so on, if they're just kind of looking at it from a distance, they look at the kinds of things that premillennialists are saying, and then they go, dude, that is just way too weird. I don't even want to go there. I'm not even going to think about that. It seems way more sane and down-to-earth to believe that one day the earth is going to end and I go into eternity. That just seems really tame by comparison. And so no wonder we're attracted to it. And especially if you have any kind of intellectual respect at all, you're not going to gain any points in our culture by believing in this stuff. The intellectually respectable thing to do would to believe the tamest and sanest version of the faith, not this wild, crazy stuff that Revelation's talking about. And I think I was under the throes of that kind of prejudice and that kind of contempt and that kind of allergy toward it because it was frankly embarrassing. Why do I have to believe that? (laughs) 
And I was too embarrassed to believe that. So when someone comes along and says, well, you can be an amillennialist, oh, okay, I'll be one of those. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Thanks. I've always thought this stuff was weird, too. I was reading there, and it says that the days, talking about the end times, are going to be cut short so that lest even the elect are fooled or lest they fall away from their belief, uh -huh. are taken in by the lies. And I thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's easy to assume that either we're not going to be part of that or if we get there, we'll make it somehow. We'll be fine. We'll recognize what the right thing to do is. But it sounds like if we don't really put the work into understanding that that guy over there isn't Jesus and right. that then the, the lies are going to be so compelling and the pressure is going to be so great that we are all in danger of being taken in by that. Yeah, yeah. So hence the fact that prophets and the apostles were saying, you know, this is the real meat that you got to understand, you know, yeah. what God's up to in history. Because if you don't understand, you're going to think, well, I'll just, I can bow down to this guy and I'll still be fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Well said. Well, go and be cool.